Advancements in the medical field are giving nurses faster, more effective results than ever before. They should expect the same from their education, too. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format allows you to set your own deadlines and leverage your experience to move faster through your program. So the faster you move, the more money you save. When you're ready, we'll be here. Visit capella.edu for a trial course at no cost to you. Capella University. Don't just learn, learn smarter. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Talk Nerdy. Today is Monday, August 17th, 2020, and I'm the host of the show, Cara Santa Maria. And this week, I've got a great interview for you. But before we dive in, I just want to thank our top supporters of the show. So here's a big shout out to June Sapara, Christopher Pitts, Michael Gaucher, Mary Neva, Pasquale Gelati, Ulrika Hagman, Dudas Infinitas, David J.E. Smith, Charles Payet, and Brian Holden. And of course, I've been sending out some uh, thank yous, kind of not in person. I can't just show up to your door, but through the mail. Um, again, to thank you so much for your support throughout the years. If you guys want to pledge your support to the show, you've just got to visit patreon.com slash talk nerdy and you can learn more. All right. This week we have a fascinating chat for you. It's actually a guest that we had on the show several years ago. He's back and he's got even more info for you. Dr. Adam Rutherford earned his PhD in genetics and now works as an author, a television presenter, and continues his work as a scientist in the UK. You may have heard him on BBC Radio 4 for doing two podcasts, BBC Inside Science and The Curious Cases of Rutherford and Fry. You also may have read some of his previous books that we talked about right here on the show, but his newest book is the one that we dive into today. It's called How to Argue with a Racist, What Our Genes Do and Don't Say About Human Difference. And in the U.S., it's available starting August 4th, 2020. Hey, guess what? That's now. So pick up your copy and you'll be able to learn an awful lot more than even we were able to dive into in the short time we had to chat with one another. Without any further ado, here he is, Dr. Adam Rutherford. Well, Adam, thank you so much for joining me once again today. It's my absolute pleasure. It's always nice to talk to you. Yeah. So the last time we chatted was quite some time ago, and we were talking about no lie, two books ago, like we had it on the books to meet to talk about Humanimal, your book in between the previous book that we chatted about and your new book that's about to come out in the US. Um, and then like, I think I had to reschedule and then like you had COVID and all sorts mm -hmm. of things happen. And somehow you managed to write two whole books in a very tiny span of time. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, scientists do have this really annoying habit of just, they just keep going. <laughs> and they, they, you know, it, it doesn't ever seem to finish. I've, I've made requests, you know, heartfelt requests that uh, maybe they should just stop for, I don't know, six months or a year <laughs> so we can just catch up for a bit. Just take a break, you know, slow down. It, it, you don't have to do this right now. And then COVID happens and then uh, Black Lives Matters happens. And um, yeah, it just it never ends, which is good for us. But of course, the 
your newest book, How to Argue with a Racist, and of course the American subtitle is What Our Genes Do and Don't Say About Human Difference. This was released, a previous version was already released in the UK. So you must have been working on this, getting this ready, had your mind on this topic long before. I mean, Black Lives Matter has been an issue, you know, forever. And of course, there have been like waves of media attention. And I think quite honestly, like white awareness of Black Lives Matter for many, many years. But this this more recent wave following George Floyd's death, your, your book was already basically done at that point, right? Yeah, that's right. So the, the last time we spoke, we were talking about, yeah, two books ago, A Brief History of, of Everyone Who Ever Lived. And mm-hmm. in that, there is a large chapter about well, I, I talk about both race, science, and eugenics, um, which is a big part of my sort of wheelhouse, not least because uh, I, I come from the, the laboratory in uh, UCL, the Galton Laboratory, where a lot of this stuff was uh, formulated and, and founded in the first place. Um, and then the race book, the, the current book, How to Argue with a Racist, um, it is a sort of massive development of some of the ideas that I touch on upon that. Uh, uh, upon in that I touch on it in a brief history, mm-hmm. but over the last couple of years, we felt me and my editor we were talking a lot about this and felt like it needed a, a, a much more s- sort of honed attack on scientific racism. And even in the last what well, what is it three four years since a brief history came out, the conversations about race have changed, um, have become you know, really significant in our popular discourse, the rise of nationalist and populist governments in the, in the US with Trump in the UK with Brexit, um, meant that all of a sudden this whole conversation about race and genetics, which one of the things I say in the book is that this is non-controversial within the academy. You know, this is mm-hmm. not, not stuff that we feel needs to be examined in any great detail within the walls of of population and human genetics. But all of a sudden we found that this was, it was just an essential part of the conversation uh, in, in our, in our public facing persona. And then coupled to that, something I touched on in earlier work is the rise of genetic ancestry testing, which I think, you know, we, we talked about this last time. Um, I, I am extremely skeptical about but they, it also has the effect of reinforcing these notions of genetic essentialism that our culture and our behavior is encoded in our, in our DNA and, and that we can find answers about ancestry and particularly ancestral purity in, in those tests, which I just don't think is correct. Right. And, and, not just because I think we're giving them in a way like too much credit based on the fact that the vast majority of these tests are like the big databases are mostly like white Europeans anyway. But also if I understand this correctly and I'm remembering back to our conversation and remembering to like Angela Saini's books and remembering to some of the articles that I've been reading recently, what we're trying, we, what they're trying to say in these ancestry companies is you know, you have this type of ancestry based on the DNA uh, that we're matching from you, like certain kind of um, sequences that we're matching from your DNA to modern day people living in that country, right? I mean, because we don't have a pool of ancient DNA. 
Yeah, that's 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 basically correct. And it, from that, we infer our ancestry. So right. you know, I, I'm I'm critical of these companies, but but you know, I have to do due respect and due diligence was actually saying what what it is that they're doing. And companies like Ancestry and Twenty Three and Me are doing robust science. It's just the interpretation and the marketing surrounding it and mm. what we take as punters from from these tests. In fact, if you look at the 23andMe pages, and I, I, I look at my own um, uh, analysis from 23andMe, the way, the detail in which they go into to explain that these are not deterministic uh, genotypes, they're not things that will give you a specific disease, they're not saying that your ancestry you have specific ancestors from these locations. They do actually explain pretty well, I think, pretty yeah. robustly what the data actually says. The thing is, though, I don't think anyone notices or looks at it or makes a lot of effort to understand what that that sort of detail because the narrative is much more appealing. The narrative that you you spit in the tube, you send off your hundred bucks, and 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 a few weeks later you get a report which says, "Wow, you know, I've got." Italian ancestry or, or, um, or German ancestry or, 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 you know, particularly interesting in America with its history of, of, uh, transatlantic slavery, um, that to reveal that, for example, you know, a significant proportion of white Americans have a significant proportion of, um, African ancestry in their genomes. And right. the, con- the converse is also true as well, because the African American population has a, peculiar and unique ancestral trajectory as a result of the the heinous crimes of of transatlantic slavery so th- those sort of narratives can they 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 pop up out of these data and they can be very appealing but i i they, they require scrutiny and caveat emptor in terms of understanding what it what it is exactly that they that they are saying, are not saying, are capable of saying when it comes to DNA in relation to our identity, because that's fundamentally what we're talking about, how cultural identity and personal identity relates to uh, inheritance in a, in a biological sense, meaning, meaning DNA. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there's so many of those, like you mentioned, these interpretive stories that become really important for a lot of people, um, whether it be reinforcing cultural um, or traditional kind of familial norms, whether it be, um, I don't know, like absolving. I, I see that a lot, like a weird phenomenon in the US, especially is people kind of bragging or being proud of having Native American ancestry. Mm-hmm. This is something you see quite a lot, even if, you know, their DNA profile shows that they're like, you know, 2.3%, whatever that really means, like from a probabilistic standpoint, um, you know, some uh, tribal place or like some some Native American ancestry. And somehow that I think, I don't know, often I interpret this as like a weird white guilt thing, like a kind of, oh, but I'm part of this, um, sadly, uh, you know, historical genocide that like oftentimes we think of our ancestors as having perpetrated. Oh, but I'm also on the other side of that as well. It's it's a weird situation psychologically where there is um, a lot of emotional baggage around what happened, what our parents and our parents' parents and our parents' parents either were subjected to, which of course we know leads to 
um, institutional and systemic problems based on, um, how do I put this? Like based on lasting, um, you know, negative consequences, disenfranchisement, things of that nature. And then on the flip side of that, I think one of the most common kind of very racist arguments that you'll often hear in the U.S. is like, well, I can't be responsible for what my, you know, great, great granddaddy did. So I don't think we need to pay reparations. Like this is an, a very common social argument. And it's, it's interesting how genetics has weirdly worked its way into these very classic kind of social and cultural issues. Yeah, that that's exactly right. And I think it's a it's yet another example of how there is misplaced faith in the in the robustness or the, the informativeness of science. And if you can get someone in a white coat to tell you X, so you know, so something about your ancestry, then somehow that validifies your it your your, your sort of cultural identity in a way that can't be done simply by um, by, by non-biological or non-scientific means. So, I mean, you've touched on a lot of things there, and I think it's really, I, I focus heavily on the Americas in, in the book because it has such a peculiar history. Um, and also because I, 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 I love the US and, and I, it, it has provided me with so much of my cu- cultural heritage in a way that I'm deeply, deeply, um, grateful for. But that's not to say that it doesn't come with all, you know, this, this enormous baggage as, as well. So you've got, you know, the, the Native American thing is fascinating. And, and part of my trajectory, my own personal trajectory in telling these stories is that we uncovered, uh, my, my second cousin is a genealogist and has done the Rutherford family tree in great depth and has got it back to the oh, wow. 17th century. And within that uncovered the, 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 the peculiar discovery that, we have a, a, a Native American um, uh, ancestral branch, right? Which was a big surprise oh, interesting. to us. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Because your family is Indian, right? Well, no. So, so my mother is Indian, but I was raised by my stepmother from very young, and she's from the east of England. And gotcha. um, my dad is from Yorkshire, so was born in, mm-hmm. in, in Gateshead, in fact, uh, which is on the east coast, northeast coast. Um, but, and it's the Rutherford side of that, of that family that the, the genealogy has been done. Gotcha. And, and they discovered a, um, uh, well, a, a birth certificate, sorry, a marriage certificate of one Mary Huntley, who was described on her marriage certificate in Covent Garden in the early 19th century as savage, right? And wow. yeah, and, and when we went back further, it turns out that the family name at this point becomes Handy and there is, um, Benjamin Handy's traveling circus. So I'm descended from circus, uh, performers. And what had happened was Mary Huntley's father, Neil Huntley, was a Catawba tribesman who was uh, famous for his horse jumping skills and had hmm. been imported into this circus in the UK. Um, f- for for exactly this reason, and and was advertised as such, and this was not that uncommon. Um, in fact, circuses in the UK at this time in the eighteenth nineteenth century were one of the few places where you could see people from all around the world, um, almost in what would become human zoos towards the middle of the nineteenth century. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. Okay, so this is a little bit pre-human zoo. Yeah, a, a, a little yeah. bit, but but it's all part of the same cultural milieu. Mm-hmm. 
anyway, so you know, we we found that we have this this Native American ancestry, and it was this was all coming. It was all emerging at exactly the time that Elizabeth Warren was sort of repeatedly getting into trouble for claiming right. her Native American ancestry, and then having genetic tests which demonstrated it. And and it was exactly this the point that I I tell this story because it's it's cool, right? You know, it's really cool to have a circus horse jumping Catawba <laughs> tribesman in your family tree. But the point that I'm making is, well, well, several points. One is it has nothing to do with me culturally. It also right. has nothing to do with me in, in terms of genetics. I probably carry no DNA from Neil or Mary Huntley, um, just to, to do with the way that genetics actually works when it's transferred from generation via sperm and egg. Um, and the, you know, the notion that I could have cultural identity from having this, this, you know, weird, peculiar and pretty cool, um, ancestry is, well, it's, it's nonsensical. It doesn't make any sense w whatsoever. And so to claim it would be a complete cultural appropriation, which, which is not validated scientifically. And so I actually use this weirdness of my own family tree that we discovered over the last couple of years. To sort of disprove the, the the whole concept of of biology recapitulating indigeneity or you know claiming ancestry um, with with these sorts of well you know genetic genealogy or genealogy because those two things are slightly different. I mean, the other thing about yeah. Mary, Mary Huntley is she's she's in the eighteenth uh, nineteenth century, which means that. Uh, yes, I am one of her descendants, a blood descendant for whom I probably carry no DNA. But she probably also has, I, I, I can't do the estimate, but it would, I would guess it'd be between tens of thousands and millions of descendants alive today in the UK. So the fact that I can discover that is cool and is a little bit special. The fact that she exists and has living descendants is entirely normal and just represents how ancestry actually works how genealogy in genealogy we focus on individuals because you can find these people but that's not how genetic genealogy works and it's not how family trees actually work which is that we have you know we we have millions of positions on our family tree as we go upwards through time but they're filled by the same people thousands of times over Right. It's something we don't think. I mean, it it really parallels the arguments that you often hear in science communication sort of against thinking about Darwinian evolution as being linear, like because we've it's been presented so many times as being linear and goal oriented. And of course, we know that a much more realistic or, um, uh, you know, a, a, a view that's much more reflective of reality is to think of this as like a, a branching bush and to think of it as having all these terminal points that die out and all of these um, repeats and things like that and being somewhat, um, not somewhat, but completely not goal-oriented. And th th I see a parallel there when you think about human sort of genealogy because, right, we, we often, we start with us the end point and say, I want to know the story of us and count backward, which feels linear. But if we start with some of the early ancestors, if we know anything about the population on the planet at the time, if we know anything about statistics and mathematics, we very quickly realize exactly what you said. If you go back, you know, N generations, one generation, great, that's four grandparents. And then two generations, each of them had how many parents, you know, mm -hmm. and that becomes very quickly 
so many people that ultimately collectively had so many of their own offspring. Yeah, that's 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 right. I mean, there is that mathematical conundrum that there are, uh, well, apparent mathematical conundrum that there are more people alive today than at any point in history, and yet our family trees get bigger as as mm. you go back through time. But it is the solution to that is that our family trees are not trees, as you say, they're tangled, matted bushes at best, and they go outwards from us if you're relatively outbred, and then they collapse in on themselves. And what you find is that the you you will have discrete branches on your family tree that cross through the same individual. So you, your great, 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 great grandmother might be that twice or even three times. Mary Huntley may be my great times five ancestor on multiple branches of that family tree because we're all relatively inbred. And then the mass that falls out of that is as you keep going back, the lines become more and more crossed through more and more individuals until you reach this point, which is called the genetic isopoint, where all branches of all family trees for all individuals cross through all individuals alive at a point in time. And I know, you know, your head sort of falls off after I say sentences like like, like that. But it means that at the isopoint, everyone alive at that time is the ancestor of everyone alive today or no one alive today. Right. So right. If, they, if their lineage j- just petered out because n- someone didn't have kids, then it stops. But if they did have living descendants today and you were alive at the isopoint, then you are the ancestor of everyone alive today. And when we work out the isopoint for, say, Europe, it comes out as about a thousand years ago. So it means that's that, it. yeah, that's it. That means everyone in Europe who has living descendants today is the ancestor of every 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 European and everyone descended from Europeans today. So, and tell me, is that because you know a thousand years ago there were so many fewer people on the planet, and people, of course, were so much more isolated? They were living in small villages. The people that knew each other were, you know, mating with each other. Um, people just weren't doing as much. I mean, there was always migrations, but those migrations took a long time. A new population would settle down. Like, is that why? Just because people didn't have the opportunities, like today, I can get on a plane and fly to Scotland, and you know, like potentially spreading my genes around, <laughs> but people just they couldn't do that back then. It's it's related to that. That is part of 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 how this how the maths of this works, but it's it's. It's more to do with the fact that we're we're just really bad at understanding history and generational time, <laughs> and, yeah. and, and you know the whole concept of genealogy relies on under- identifying individuals from history, when in fact most people have passed through history without leaving any trace, and so we, we ignore the vast majority of our ancestors. You're right to say that most people we didn't move around as much in the past as we did today, and we tend to marry geographically much more in a restricted manner. But but it doesn't take much to move, for one person mm-hmm. to move and for genes to spread. So, you know, a really good example of this, when we do, when we look at the, ge- the genetic isopoint for the entire planet, it comes out at around, um, around the 14th century BC, right? So about okay. three and a half thousand years ago, the population of the planet alive today is the ancestor of everyone alive today. And you know, that blows your mind multiple times. The, you know, I've said that hundreds of times over the last few years in lectures and in interviews and stuff. And every time I say it, I think, dude, that's nuts. Right. <laughs> um, but then 
um, and then sometimes, you know, people, sometimes being in audiences, people ask questions like, um, well, hold on a minute. What about, what about the Americas? Right. Because the Americas were isolated from the rest of the global population from about 20, maybe 25 to 20,000 years ago until 1492. Right. So how can it be that there must be remote tribes in Southern America or South America um, who have not had any contact with European settlers since 1492? Surely they cannot be the ancestors of me or you. And the, the, the answer is in history, unfortunately, because the, the first thing that, that, that Columbus did when he and his men arrived in um, in the Caribbean in 1492 was to rape the indigenous women of the Taino. And as soon as that happens, you've got European gene flow uh, into a previously isolated population. And from that point on, it doesn't take much. Advancements in the medical field are giving nurses faster, more effective results than ever before. They should expect the same from their education too. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format allows you to set your own deadlines and leverage your experience to move faster through your program. So the faster you move, the more money you save. When you're ready, we'll be here. Visit capella.edu for a trial course at no cost to you. Capella University. Don't just learn, learn smarter. Much for those genes to flow into every corner of the entirety of the Americas. Uh, to the extent now that there are no people in, in the Americas who don't have European ancestry. Uh, and, and that goes all the way down to the remotest tribe, because no matter how we think about, you know, some, some tribe in the, in the Amazon being isolated for hundreds of, of generations or thousands of years, no one is isolated. No one is static through time. No, no population has no contact with the outside world. And the, the, the two ways in which that manifests itself are through movement and sex, the, the two things that humans are really, really good at. Um, and, and so that, that, if, if Columbus hadn't invaded and um, violently colonized the Americas in, in the 15th century and onwards, then that's, that number, the 14th century BC um, isopoint, might be much older. But that, that is what happened. Um, and as a result, there aren't any indigenous Americans, north or south, that don't have European ancestry. Oh, and I think, you know, obviously what that explanation goes to show us, number one, is how we can make sense of this sort of like mathematical conundrum, this confusion for many people. How, how can we make sense of something that feels very um, uh, kind of on its surface like it couldn't be true? But it also obviously opens up a much deeper conversation about the fact that oftentimes when we talk about science in general, we sanitize the shit out of it. And we don't want to either admit or maybe because we've been taught in textbooks and with a certain kind of political um, fear around rabble rousing or simply ignorance, we leave out the really important geopolitical, social, psychological consequences of how science 
not just how the act of modern science evolved and, you know, why we know what we know, but also history, you know, art, literature, how all the things that feed into what we think of as modern culture and society have been brutally negatively affected by things like power dynamic, oppression, disenfranchisement, rape, violence against women, violence against people of color. I mean, these are truths that have shaped everything we know, yet we act as if they're just details. Writing about slavery in in the US and slavery more generally was was a it was an eye-opening and traumatic experience because you know obviously everyone knows that transatlantic slavery was bad and then as you say you scratch the surface and find out that how much worse it 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 was a true nadir of the human experience and we you know me and you are science communicators and and you're right to point out that we 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 do sanitize um, partly through ignorance, partly because these become through complexity. These stories are hard to tell, and, and partly because they are horrific to tell. Um, understanding our history is, I think, part of my mission in these two books that we've been talking about: the A Brief History, but also the Race Book, because the foundations of biology are drawn from racist ideologies. And the creation of race that we use today is was was the marshalling of what we now know is a pseudoscience, but at the time was science, uh, into supporting a political ideology, which is the disenfranchisement and the subjugation of, of the people that European Europeans were encountering as the uh, colonistic expansion uh, occurred around the world. And so you see, you know, the, the, the fact that there is the co-opting of this science into, into reinforcing and creating this ideology means that the, that the biology and science more broadly are, then, then it's not separate from history. It is part of the history. It is specific to the history of, of, of the West when we're talking about these sorts of issues with, with regards to, to race. Recently, um, Lawrence Krauss wrote an article for the, well, it was for, it was originally in Quillette, which is a peculiar. I'm like, oh, oh no, what are you going to say? Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. And then it was republished in the in the um, I think it was the Washington Post, or maybe the Wall Street Journal. One of the two begins mm-hmm. with a W. Anyway, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> and and in it, he was arguing that science itself cannot be racist because of the way science is is built. And, and I, you know, there's, there's lots of caveats and there's lots of sort of details within that, which I think are interesting. The fact that he's a high end cosmologist, it probably means that that argument is more defensible than if you're a, you know, anthropologist or a human geneticist like, like I am. Uh, right. But also the fact that he's like a privileged white guy who's never had to experience a lot of the things that he's pretending don't matter or don't exist in science is pretty, Important. Well, yeah, and he he he, does, he makes the um he he pointed out that his supervisor was was a black physicist, uh, which is the sort of you know my some yeah, of my I know a black guy, so I can be yeah, racist. Yeah, I yeah. <laughs> but, but I thought it you know setting aside all of the sort of personal animosity or difficulties with mm-hmm. with that, I thought it was it, it 
it was sort of functionally incorrect. I, I described it as being fractally incorrect, but meaning that it, you know, no matter how much you zoomed in in on it, it <laughs> continued to be incorrect right. in, in the same sort of uninteresting ways. Because we, the, the only way that science is pure and um, amoral and non-racist is in a fantasy existence where science is completely separate from humanity. And science is not yeah. done by humans and all their intellectual and historical baggage that is associated with the existence of humans, right? Um, so it, it's it's a it's an argument I've come across many times from um, from the sort of skeptical science community um, mm -hmm. over the years, saying you know we we are separate from this because our methods are better than other ways of understanding reality or even understanding the past. And I think it's a bad argument. I think it's a specious and a fatuous argument, even though it's well-intentioned and supportive of science. But if we try and extract science and the scientific method from the history in which it is built, we are, we're denying the, its own evolution. And so the, the point about it, cosmology may be being more distinct than human genetics or anthropology, I think is, is relevant here. But yeah. the fact of the matter is that Anthropology was built on the subjugation of people, a pseudoscience that emerged into or evolved into um, sort of genetics in the late 19th and early 20th century, was built upon racist ideologies by racists in a time of racism. Now, you know, one of the key rules in history is we don't judge people by contemporary standards, and that's fine. It, it is possible to describe these people as racist because they were racists right. in a, in a non-judgmental way um and they were white supremacists in that the, the the origination of taxonomy and classification of humans by people like Linnaeus and Kant and Voltaire and founding fathers of western philosophy they weren't simply classification systems as we think of them today they were hierarchical they were all hierarchical with white Europeans being at the top of that hierarchy. Right, with value judgments in them. Like Huge value very judgments. Very obvious value judgments. Yeah, in Linnaeus's work, in which he is, in Systeme Naturae, uh, which is the basis of biological taxonomy that we still use today, in which he is describing plants and animals and also rocks, which didn't really work out as a system. But that 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 Latinate system that we use, Homo sapiens, um, you know, uh, Gorilla Gorilla, uh, Felix Catus. Thank yeah. you for <laughs> bailing me out there. I could suddenly <laughs> think of any animals. Um, Quercus Robustus, you know, the oak tree. That comes from Linnaeus. But he also included humans in this, Homo sapiens, and he included subspecies in there. And, and subspecies is, a, is an area which... I, I, <laughs> it's a classification system which I don't think has any validity anymore. Right. But in there, it says, it says... Homo sapiens americanus are red-skinned with straight black hair and are haughty and governed by customs. It says right. Homo sapiens africanus, black-skinned, um, curly hair, shiny skin, capri sexually capricious, and uh, you know, and other horrific value judgments, which which are. They're, they're, they're sort of they're so non-scientific. The fact that they start with a simple diagnostic, you know, a, a phenotype like mm -hmm. skin color or hair straightness or color, 
And then immediately in the same sentence goes on to these, these value judgments. And then when it comes to white Europeans, it is Homo sapiens Europeus, Europeans. Um, and they are gentle and beautiful and acute minded and inventive. And you think, yes. you know, that's what? how I often think of colonialists. <laughs> like, Jesus. <laughs> but this stuff is so embedded in our science. Yeah. It is, it is rooted, it is, it is woven into the fabric of our science and our culture because the same stereotypes that, that are described in Linnaeus in Systema Naturae back in, in the 18th century, mid 18th century exist as stereotypes and myths, um, racialized myths to this day that held by you know, not just overt racists or white supremacists or neo-Nazis, but by non-racist people and by scientists are, are, as you alluded to at the beginning, our data sets for genomics are almost exclusively for white Europeans. And there's historical reasons for that because most of the research is done there. But, you know, I just think there's a deep irony in that the, the most subjugated people, the people who suffered the most from this whole project of the birth of scientific racism, by which I mean, I mean, sub-Saharan Africans and pe- particularly sub-Saharan African people on the West Coast, who who were became the enslaved, who were seized and taken from their families to be enslaved. That that we know the least about the genetics of sub-Saharan Africans because we haven't looked. Because mm-hmm. we, we simply we, simply because we haven't looked, we just didn't look. We didn't look until recently, and now in genetics we're aware of this as a problem. And you know, really good projects are are out there trying to understand um, African American genomes and African genomes in a, to to a degree which is similar to the which we understand white European genomes. You know, a double irony as well, given that. We are an African species. Almost all of human evolution occurred in Africa, and there is more genetic diversity within Africa than there is in the rest of the world put together. So th- that is structural racism. That is, and people just don't even. I think it's like whether they know that or they like just refuse to admit it, or the concept of what's happening, like this idea—not this idea, this truth—that there's more genetic diversity within. A continent where many people don't even understand that that's not one country. You know, that, like that, like there are so many different two thousand languages, so many different cultures, and of course, actual different genetic lineages. Um, it's so much geographic, you know, shifting and things like that. That it's it, it's hard for people to fathom. I don't know if it's because every narrative they've ever been taught is contrary to that, or they simply. Are, have like blinders on. They're simply working within a culture that's so far away from it where they just ha- don't, they've never traveled. They don't have the exposure. But, you know, there, there's so many things that I wanted to raise in what you just said. Um, the first one I want to mention, but then I want to come back to it, is this idea of it seems like what a lot of the kind of if you want to call them overtly racist, if you want to call them kind of under the radar, maybe not what we think of as being overtly racist, but like racially motivated, this new rebranding of racism that is like race realism or white supremacy, um, this idea of essentialism, which is so important, I think, to a lot of 
the ways that the science has been twisted to promote an ideology so that there's something essential in a person that can't be changed because of their race. So I want to come back to that because I think that's sort of in many ways the main argument that racists have. Um, But you also touched on something about this kind of skeptical view that's very misguided and the specious argument about the fact that like science can't be racist. And this is something I encounter a lot because I actually work within a skeptic community heavily. You know, I'm a, I'm a, uh, uh, co-host of the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. I go to skeptic conferences a lot and I see a lot, lately it's gotten bad. I've noticed more and more, I'm getting a lot more nasty emails, a lot more of that kind of pushback. And one of the things that I always try to say in response to these arguments is I feel like what we're mixing up in the skeptic community sometimes is actual goal-oriented behavior or intent with successful application. So I think it's perfectly fair to say that as science, the goal is to divorce yourself from any sort of biased influence. But that's like, that's a goal that you're always going to be chasing. It's always to try and get as close to it as you can, knowing that you're nowhere near it and being honest with yourself that the human biases are, are intrinsic to the system. Because the only way you're ever going to be able to even get close to achieving a goal of being an unbiased actor is to be honest about the fact that you're really fucking biased. <laughs> and that's something that we're just not, I don't see enough people being honest about within the skeptic community. So uh, I could not agree with you more about that. And, you know, I, I also have been, b- because because of the year that we're in and because of our age, I, I've also sort of grown up with the emergence of the skeptic community and, and, and also witnessed this sort of rotten core emerging from it. I think without getting into too much detail about about that sort of history, I think the fundamental problem is that people who call themselves skeptics are often not skeptical enough, right? And so you get to the point where you you look at a data set and say, well, this is data, right? And data is, is, is what we rely on in science. And the, the data, data doesn't says, lie. Right, right. And, and, <laughs> and it doesn't care about your feelings, which is an absurd uh-huh. thing to say. Um, <laughs> but but um, uh, so, so you say things like, and, and let's, let's talk specifically about raci- racialized issues of data that have emerged in, in, in skeptical communities. Um, you say things like, well, uh, there hasn't been a white man in the Olympic final of the 100 meters since 1980, when a Scotsman called Alan Wells uh, won, uh, but it was the year that it was in Moscow that year, so the Americans were um, were not present because uh, they were boycotting it because of communism. Anyway, since then, every single winner of the 100 meter sprint has been um, a, a man of recent African descent, either from the Caribbean, um, the USA, or Canada. Right. Well, that's data, and that I'm going to say I'm going to use that to reinforce my belief that African Americans have possibly, through the behavior of of uh, uh, the, the possibly as a result of enslavement in the Americas, 
are genetically predisposed to being good at explosive energy sports. Right. And you think, well, you know, that isn't, that feels experientially like a reasonable thing to say. The, the problem right, but that's is, an interpretation of the data. If you stop there, yeah. I mean, if you stop yeah. there, then you're effectively reinforcing structural racism. A true right. skeptic then scratches beneath the surface and says, well, why is that the case? Because if, I, if, if I'm saying that this is, this is because it's biologically encoded as a result of enslavement, now that's an interesting scientific and historical thing to analyze. But I think part of the problem is that most people don't go further than that. And that this, this, is, this is where, in having these conversations over the last couple of years, I've had the most revelatory expressions um, th- of people who are non-racist or even anti-racist and, and who come back and say, oh God, I didn't think about that. I mean, problem one the sample size is 58. There have been 58 men who've run in, in those races since 1980. So, you know, that's just a non-starter. Um, and then people begin to look at the genetics. Um, I, I mean, obviously, I, I, could, I can talk about this particular race for, for hours, and um, let's not get stuck in the, in the weeds too much. Um, there is a biological uh, basis to um, particular muscle types, which are associated with explosive energy rather than endurance sports. And they do occur at a higher frequency in Olympic sprinters, as you would completely expect. Do they occur at a higher frequency in African Americans? Yes, compared to European Americans. Does it account for the difference? Absolutely not. So, uh, it, the complexities of the genetics are such that they go a tiny bit to explaining a very complex picture. Um, but often within these sorts of discussions within the race realists or the human biodiversity movement, uh, or, or even within the skeptic community, the, the discussion has ended by the point where you say, look, the, the data says that my preconception was correct. When in fact, of course. it's not true at all. Of course. It reminds me a little bit. It was interesting. We had Angela Saini on The Skeptic's Guide and um, Steve, the host, was asking her about some of these examples that a lot of, um, I don't even want to say that racists used to argue um, for difference, for like um, biological differences between races. You know, she was making the argument that race is a social construct, this argument we've talked about a lot on the show. And, um, and I think we should get into that as well. And, um, you know, Steve was saying, yes, but there are biological differences. Not that he was arguing against it being a social construct, but he was saying, let's take the example of, um, sickle cell anemia. And I love this example because you think, I think racists or not even racists, but people who are not at all racist, but, you know, are like, let's look at the actual biological differences. We'll use this as supportive evidence to say sickle cell anemia, it's a higher occurrence in African-Americans. That's why medically we need to approach race as a tool and say, I need to know that this person is black so that I can know if they have a predisposition to sickle cell anemia. And then she, of course, politely pushed back and said, white people can have sickle cell. And there are whole swaths of Africa where sickle cell is not very relevant because malaria is not endemic in those areas. And it's gotten to the point now where we have to, in the US, we test all babies for it. Because even if it's a higher percentage in Black Americans because of the transatlantic slave trade, that's not a hard and fast rule. And those exceptions are almost in many ways more telling about human variation 
than what we want to always think of as the quote unquote rule. Yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, yeah, as you, as you say, sickle cell is a, is a disease and a condition that is associated with resistance to malaria. So we see it all over the world in areas where malaria was endemic. Um, and, but, but I think there's a, there's a really important point within this, which is that, so, you know, let's, let's talk about race as a social construct because it does mean that it's real. It means that it is, it is real and incredibly important. Right. But, Cause the first argument I get a lot when we talk about it being a social construct from naysayers on the internet is, oh, what? So you're saying race doesn't exist. If it didn't exist, how come X, Y, and Z? And it's like, no, I'm not saying it doesn't exist. Well, I'm I think saying that, that yeah. yeah I think it's like a straw man, right? That everybody, right. not everybody, a lot of racists like to use. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, we, we, I think all of us have been guilty of that to a certain extent because the temptation to say race doesn't exist as a, as a positive thing is, is, is striking. And I think I've even done it in, in the past, but I think we need to be better at explaining what we mean when, when trying to say that race doesn't exist as a biological construct. There isn't any version of the way we describe races uh, culturally and socially which aligns with our understanding of of human biology and human variation. So yes, sickle cell does occur at a higher frequency in African Americans as a result of transatlantic slavery from people whose ancestors were were evolved alongside malaria. Is it unique to them? No, it's not. Is it unique to Africans? No, it's not. Is it unique to, to African-Americans? None of the above. And so there aren't any characteristics which align with our social constructs of race. But having said that, the social construct of race when it comes to, for example, medicine is incredibly important because medicine is heavily racialized, not for biological reasons, but for social, socioeconomic reasons. And so we, we know very well that, um, that there are hu- you know, hugely inflated, uh, incidences of, of cardiovascular diseases and many common diseases in African Americans compared to white Europeans. And there is often a biological underpinning of that, which is not unique to African Americans, but occurs at a higher frequency. Um, but all of that is less relevant than the fact that almost all diseases. Advancements in the medical field are giving nurses faster, more effective results than ever before. They should expect the same from their education too. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format allows you to set your own deadlines and leverage your experience to move faster through your program. So the faster you move, the more money you save. When you're ready, we'll be here. Visit capella.edu for a trial course at no cost to you. Capella University. Don't just learn, learn smarter. This correlate most strongly with poverty and with socioeconomic status. And we see that, you know, we've seen that this freaking year, when I, I didn't anticipate that, 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 you know, COVID would be as, as significant as, as it has turned out to be. Although, you know, everyone within my community knew that there was another pandemic coming. Um, when it started to emerge that it significantly affected in the UK, black and Asian people at a higher frequency and in the US, black, Asian and Hispanic, Latino people, um, immediately I started getting calls from people saying, well, wait a minute, doesn't this prove that race is a biological reality? Because Right. Or the- or a response literally of people saying, So what are you saying that COVID is racist? Right, right, right. Well, you know, the, the racialization of COVID 
was instantaneous for for the mm. first reason being that it came from from Wuhan in in China and um the number of the number of of racist attacks based on covid in the Americas has been studied it has its own wikipedia page now and it's in the many thousands and you know half of them are korean americans uh which right they're not even chinese right. but of course you know when trump is calling it china virus every day on the news yeah i mean what can you and that's like that's the most polite thing he calls it exactly exactly yeah. and, and then you, then you've got the sort of medicalization or the biologization of of covid so w- w- when when we begin to see that the, 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 there are higher frequencies of infection and death rates amongst african americans and hispanic latino and, and asian americans um there have been attempts over the last 6 months to try and biologize that one one of the most significant being to do with vitamin d metabolism and we may yet find out that there is a a slight genetic predisposition towards an in, infection and it may be connected with vitamin d we don't know i don't know no one knows um but that hasn't stopped loads of people basically trying to biologize that racialized difference when in fact we know exactly why the frequency of infection and death rate is higher in african americans and hispanic latino people it's because of the the socialization of of medicine in in terms of the the fact that infectious diseases are hits lower socioeconomic groups much harder because they tend to live in urban areas in multi-generational families the the fact that i could lock down for 6 months and not leave the house is not something that that so many of the people who have jobs so that that couldn't lock down that, that were required yeah, to be workers yeah um where infection rates are higher the fact that in multi-generational families you're going to have older people who are more likely to die you know blah 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 the reason i can say blah 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 is because none of these things are unique to COVID. Right. And that's the part that's so frustrating is when people, like you just said, let's say we find out that there is some sort of vitamin D specific, you know, phenotypic difference between people with black skin and people with white skin and their susceptibility to COVID. And let's say that it accounts for 5% of the variance in cases. If we know, and I'm just making up numbers here, that 45% of the variance is because of SES and because of systemic racism, why are people so obsessed with pointing or like investigating that 5% when the low hanging fruit in front of us is that systemic racism is causes massive health crises why are we ignoring that well quite well, quite i mean it's these things are well understood and they're 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 fixable right right they're, they're, with a genetic predisposition to certain diseases those are things that we can look at from a genetic point of view and you know generate tons of research and hopefully pharmaceuticals that will be targeted towards particular genotypes and note that i said genotypes are not races all of right. that is work that needs to be done but so much of healthcare and so much of the susceptibility to infectious diseases and and lifestyle diseases uh, it is just socioeconomic in a way that we we just fully understand. You know, the, one of the examples in the book that I use, which is not about medicine but about sport, I, I it's one of the things that makes me so angry, and it's to do with swimming. And the racialization of sport is, I think, important even if you're not into sport because it's one of the ways that we 
see the people of, of the rest of the world and behaviors mm. of the people of the rest of the world. But there's some there's a, there's a long-standing stereotype that black people are less good at swimming than white people. And and this is borne out in the statistics in in the US where I think from from memory it's something like 60% of African Americans don't swim compared to 60% of European Americans or maybe higher that do. Let me guess. Do many African Americans never have access to a swimming pool or never go to the beach and never learn how to swim because of these systemic problems. My God, you, I mean, you, you, you sound like a communist saying such radical things. Right. So the, for, there is a long-standing myth that African Americans or African people have denser bones and therefore are less buoyant. And Seriously? Yes. Yes. Oh God. Yes, and and it's come up. It comes up all the time. I people tell me this. The worst thing about this, or one of the worst things about this, is that. African people, or Brit- I've got a British Nigerian friend who said that to me, and I was like, and he's a doctor. And I was like, oh, dude, do you, is that? He said, yeah, everyone thinks this. It's just, and, and you know, you look at the Olympics again, the numbers are stark. There have been two African Americans in the history of swimming in the Olympics. Um, and, and, you know, the, the bone density thing, there may be some sort of mythologized basis to it to do with osteoporosis rates. But the fact of the matter is that, as you very adroitly pointed out, the key factors in learning how to swim are being taught how to swim. The other factors are socioeconomic, <laughs> yeah. because they tend to be extracurricular activities and therefore are cost-associated. Role models is huge in, in sport. Right. That's why you get yeah, clusters you've got to of see people who look like you. Exactly. Yeah. You get clusters of sports and communities because people um, emulate their, their role models. And there are none. You know, there, there, there are very few African American swimmers, um, and, um, and, and yeah, and even after segregation ended in '64, um, uh, swimming pools tended to be built in predominantly white areas. So access to pools was extremely restricted, even after uh, the official end of, end of segregation. Right, and you say, well, okay, so there's a whole shit ton of socioeconomic factors that explain this massive disparity in uh, in in a behavioral in a, in a phenotype the fact that african americans on on average don't swim uh and, and yet we still try and persist or but many people persist with this sort of weirdly biologized buoyancy argument which comes up all the time now the reason it's sort of absurd until you find out that the death rate of African American children between the ages of eight and fourteen from drowning is three times higher than it is for European Americans, and you think, well, you know, this is this is a form of structural racism based on a pseudo scientific myth, which is literally lethal. It is it, it, it results in three times the deaths of children from drowning. And so, you know, the, the, that, that is infuriating. People should be up in arms about that, that, that we, have, we have these stereotypes which is racialized to the point of them being lethal. Um, oh, yeah. Across for, the board. Across the board. Ugh, and it's like, you know, I'm sitting here and I'm, I'm thinking about all of the things that we could talk about. We've already been talking for an hour. I am going to steal a tiny bit more of your time if you're okay with that. But I think the thing that I... I 
that sticks out to me, there's so many things that stick out to me. But when I was first looking at your book, um, and I realized that it had, you know, the UK version has been out for a while. Of course, it has a lot of Amazon reviews. And I thought, oh, well, this is interesting. Because of course, the book is how to argue with a racist. And you know, the idea here is, let's talk about some of the scientific and social issues around um, the history of racist thought and around modern racist arguments and, you know, break them apart a little bit. I came across what I think of as a quintessential, I'm sure you've seen this, um, this review, but I feel like it's such a great, it's not great. It's horrible. It's great in its horribleness, um, review of your book, because it speaks to exactly what we've been talking about this whole time. So this is an extreme example. Obviously, most people that approach these conversations hopefully are not this extreme. But the thing that scares me so much is that in an extreme example like this, there's almost no, I don't know, um, uh, humility. That's not the right word. There's almost no concept of how racist this person is just openly being on the internet. Or maybe they're proud of it. I don't know. Or maybe this is a freaking onion Okay. I, I want to hear this. You get, I, I'm, I'm excited to hear I, this. I'm really hold this up, right? Okay, so <laughs> waste waste of money, most disappointing book. You ready? <laughs> yeah. Ch- tried to understand why African origin people are such perpetual underachievers in any fields other than music and muscle power. This book failed completely to provide any reason, yet the results are there for all to see. No African country is a success. Most are a disaster, having squandered the benefits, such as established institutions created and left by colonialist regimes. Black achievements are minimal, and everywhere Black minorities exist in non-African countries, so does crime and racial discord. Why? Don't bother reading this book if you want explanations to any of those important issues. You will be disappointed. (laughs) And see, this is my fear, is that at some level, even though this is like really overt, at some level, this is a truism in the minds of many people. And what they're looking for is evidence or interpretation of evidence to reinforce these racist values and beliefs. And refutations of such they feel like don't go far enough or they feel like, you know, because the truth is you do argue against all of the claims that are made here. Yes, (laughs) And the truth is this person is like, even though colonialists gave them government, they still failed. And it's like, wait, you, you do see the irony in what you're saying. (laughs) The reason that we're seeing corruption and economic disaster is because, because of colonialism, right? Yeah, yeah. Ugh, it's yeah, well, I, you painful. Know, that's, that, that's 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 so sort of 180 degrees out that it almost should be a cover quote, um, right? That's what I'm saying. It's almost like Poe's law. Like you don't yeah. know if it's I if it's real. But the sad thing is, I feel like what it does is it cuts to the heart of what a like we're living in a world now. W- well, okay, hang on, let me backtrack a little. We historically lived in a world only a couple of decades ago where you needed to be polite even if you were racist. So there was, you know, you couldn't say the N-word anymore in polite society after, let's say, the late 60s or early 70s. Then if you said the N-word in public, people might equate you with the Klan. So you started to 
change the way you spoke and you'd speak in coded language if you were racist, if you were a white supremacist. And racism became a much more covert operation, almost to the point where it worked itself. It has always been working itself into American society, where some people don't even realize that they are identifying with white supremacist or racist values. Mm -hmm. But now with the rise of these populist leaders, with the rise, these uh, dog whistles that have kind of said, it's okay to come back out in the open. You'll be protected. We're, we are in power now again. You're starting to see the overtness on the tips of people's tongues. So in a way, this review seems almost comical, but the sad thing is I do think it represents a lot of people's worldviews. Yeah, I think that's right. I, and I think that, you know, I, one of the things I say at the beginning of the book is that racism never went away. But it mm. has come back in a vocal way. It's now mm, much mm -hmm. with, with the internet, with the rise of social media, with the rise of nationalist politics. Um, it now is more acceptable to express either overt or, or co as you say, coded, racialized yeah. or, or straight up racist messaging. And it's not, you know, we we focus talk about African Americans here and the the black experience of of racism. And I do talk about that a lot in the book. Um, because I'm European, because I'm British, and because colonialization is at the root of this scientific, the pseudo-scientific racism that existed for several hundred years and, and is making a sort of weird comeback now. Right. It's just very salient. Yeah. 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 But, you know, you know, anti-Semitism is, is another mm -hmm. one of those issues which, which, uh, is is so prevalent in and uh, sort of almost ubiquitous in our politics and in in our society. Um, we've had a major problem in the UK in the in the the, the major left wing party, so the Labour Party, right. uh, with anti semitism and anti semitism within um, left wing movements has been lo is long standing. It's yeah, I, and you've seen it here in the US with like. Uh, like black entertainers making anti-Semitic comments and this blowback of kind of like, whoa, guys, like, you know, you'll see supportive people in within the black community saying, hey, we need to be the people who are like the most sensitive to this. Racism is racism or xenophobia is xenophobia. But then you also see this kind of, you know, it's confusing when it comes to a lot of these, um, I guess, intersectional issues mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. these like oppression Olympics that are often played, which can be very dangerous. Yeah. So, so, you know, like, like the, um, the, the, your, your fantastic reviewer just pointing out that apart from success <laughs> right. in, in music and, uh, uh, what was it? Music sports. and sports. I think it was music and sports. Yeah. yeah. That was his argument. So you, the, the, the evidence or, or the presentation of evidence that that indicates that Jewish people are more specifically Ashkenazi Jewish people are much more successful in uh, intellectually led pursuits, um, mm -hmm. which is which is sort of partially associated with and derived with the racial, uh, the racist stereotype of Jews being good with money, right? Right, bankers and things. But there's a social reason for it. Like you can always trace this stuff back socially. Yeah, but you know, you know that. Well, I mean, one of the things that I found that I, that that the association with money lending and, and Jewishness, which which persists to this day, was a re incredibly short period of time historically and not widespread whatsoever. And so we get the racialization of these myths, and sometimes they're positive attribute racism. So you know, who doesn't want to be better at dancing or music? or better at sport or who doesn't want to be smarter or better at chess or you know the the, the those those characteristics associated with um Ashkenazi Jews 
Um, I'm not being racist when I say that. This is the argument presented. I'm, I, I'd, I'd love to be better at these things. The problem with that is, well, let's take both of those separately. The problem, w w one with associating um, uh, black people with physical prowess and musical prowess, what it does is it it devalues intellectual capabilities and reinforces these historical notions built by people like Linnaeus uh, in order to justify uh, slavery, that, these, that, that this is a group of people who are not skilled intellectually but are powerful, right? And therefore, they are right to be subjugated by smarter people than, than them. Um, this, the second thing is, right, you, you take anti-Semitism, you say, well, Jews are better at intellectual pursuits and they're better with money and they have disproportionate power in the media. I'm, I'm repeating these things in quotation marks, obviously, right, just right. in case there's any, any doubt. These are precisely the arguments used in the run-up to the Holocaust by the Nazis, by people saying that these people are not only different from us and separate from us, but also, in some ways, they're better than us. And therefore, they should be regarded as our enemy, and therefore should be um, subjugated or exterminated. Right. So exactly the same mm -hmm. arguments that you we think sometimes we think are positive attributes. I want to be smarter, or I want to be more muscly, or I want to be better at uh, rapping or music. Um, uh, and black people have this naturally, or Jews have this naturally. Well, a not true. Obviously, black people are better at hip hop, uh, although Eminem is quite good. <laughs> um, but you know the mu the music is such a such an obviously wrong headed example there. The fact that that guy said successful in in music, well, yes, um, jazz emerged out of black subcultures and became mainstream when white people discovered that it was good. Um, hip hop. I know when they decided to make money on it and decided to make money. On it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. hip hop is the most lucrative music business on earth that has ever existed. Um, and, and so you say, oh, well, black people are better at music, right? Apart from the fact that the representation of black people in classical music is effectively zero. Mm -hmm. There are no um, uh, canonical black composers of classical music, and, and there are very few virtuoso you know, conductors or orchestral members or violinists um, who are of uh, recent African descent. And you say, well, hold on a minute. So they're really good at hip hop, but really bad at the violin. So <laughs> it's, 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 you've got to be a special kind of, of, of sort of closeted, blinkered racist to think <laughs> that, that hip hop is genetically encoded in, in some way and that playing the violin is, is not. You know, I, one of the things I say in the book is that in order to address the issue of the sort of contemporary racialization of, of particularly genetics, is that I could, I could in a heartbeat do a study which demonstrated that there is a genetic predisposition, uh, that, that there is a genetic association with being, uh, having some, you know, some slick flows or being good at uh, being an MC because the majority mm. of, of, of rappers are, are black people. Now, I, I could definitely show a correlation between, in a GWAS study, in a genetic, uh, a genome-wide association study between success in hip-hop and being African-American. Does it mean that they're inherently connected? No, of course not, because these are cultural phenomena. Right. You know, the, the emergent, both, in fact, jazz and hip-hop are good examples because they're both revolutionary subcultures that emerged in the face of 
contemporary white cultures, dominant white cultures. And, and both were regarded as dangerous and threatening by white, white people. You know, jazz was, jazz was, was, people tried to outlaw jazz because it was so subversive. subversive. And the same happened in hip hop in the seventies and then in the eighties. And then, and then, um, I'm a big hip hop fan. Um, so I get slightly obsessed with talking about rap. Um, but you, you know, the, the, the emergence of, um, particularly East coast, uh, rappers from based around LA, people like NWA, um, which was so closely tied with, to bring us into the present, the brutal treatment of black people by the police, um, and by Rodney King in 92, um, and exactly the same things that we have seen in the last six months as a result of the killing of George Floyd. Um, the, you know, these things are inherently linked. Are they genetically encoded? No, you'd have to be a maniac to think that, 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 that they were. Um, so I've sort of gone off on a slightly rambly hip hop sidetrack and I can't remember why. <laughs> I love it. I love it. You know, while you were talking about it though, you mentioned something that kind of stuck out to me and maybe this is, I don't know, one of the last things that we can dive into with, with our time constraints, but you said something when you were talking about kind of Jewish history and, and banking and control of money and some of what we think of as things that have shaped our kind of modern stereotypes. And you said it was a very, very short period of time when these kinds of um, systems were in place. And it reminded me of a lot of the kind of anti-racist um, arguments that I've been seeing more and more lately. People are, I'm just loving how there is a really, really robust social movement, anti-racist social movement on social media, where people are making infographics and memes and really educating the public about stuff they never would have known, like the origins of modern policing in the country being mm. from, you know, slave patrols or the origins of certain products or songs that people are, you know, find really beloved and realizing they're like really dark racist past. And one thing that I kind of connected in my brain was this argument that you often see, and there's a great old Golden Girls. I don't know. Does Golden Girls cross the pond? Oh, yeah. Do you guys yeah. know this show? Okay, yeah, good. So there, yeah. good, good, good. So there's a great old Golden Girls episode where the Don Cheadle is in, and he's talking to Blanche, I think, about how the Confederate flag is really offensive to him. And she's saying, it's just my culture, honey. Like, I just, I don't mean anything bad by it, but this, these are the people I loved and I grew up with. And it's just it's not white pride. It's just pride in our culture. And he like explains to her and she kind of has like a realization that she's overtly being very racist or sorry, covertly or under the radar being very racist. Anyway, long story short, you were seeing more and more people saying, you know, the Confederate Confederacy lasted like four to five years tops, you know, whereas slavery in the U S was like a 400 year enterprise. So like, when we think about things in these contexts, it makes me wonder, and you know, obviously I might be asking a more psychological or sociological question, which is more kind of my background and you know, your background is more, more in the biological kind of genetics, but you've done a lot of research in this area. Why do you think people cling to these minor blips in history as exemplars for some sort of cultural 
I don't know, argument or rationale. I mean, it seems to happen quite a lot. This idea of wanting to go back to the good old days, this idea of, you know, when blacks and women and anybody who wasn't a white guy was like super oppressed and horrible. I mean, is it about power? Is it about rewriting history? Is it about cherry picking data? Yeah, well, it's all of those things and and, and more. It's also you know, humans are tribal. We, we 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 organize into groups. Those groups are very inconsistent, though, and um, uh, and we have very short term memories as well. And um, we, rem- we it's it, you know we roman- romanticize the past and. Things were always better in the olden days when, in every single regard, they they weren't for the majority of people. I, I know, like I don't want to go back then. I don't. No, I don't definitely want not. to go twenty no. years ago as a woman. No, quite, <laughs> you know? quite, quite, quite. The, I think the most important sentence that I've ever typed, um, and I I borrowed it from uh, a feminist writer, Helen Lewis, who, who I know, a friend of mine. But then I attributed it to her, and she said she didn't invent it either. And, and the genesis of it is is somewhat lost in history. But it's so I, that's why I say the most important sentence they ever typed rather than wrote. Um, but it's this: it's if all you have ever known is privilege, then equality feels like oppression. Yes. Yes. And it's so difficult to point out to people their own privilege because everyone has privilege and everyone has it in in different directions. But people don't, are very, we're humans are very bad at recognizing that. Um, And so, you know, I I have, I I got a shit ton of privilege in that um, I am male, I'm British, I was born in a middle class family um, who were very caring and loving. and and then my privilege has been built upon that that I went to a fee paying school and I went to one of the best universities because of all of that you know and I've got I got centuries of privilege plus a Y chromosome which puts me in in a, a privileged bracket uh, that is is close to the top. On the other hand, on my maternal side, I'm descended from people who were enslaved what like in the 19th century. Um, so have have uh, I, I am racialized. I'm mixed mixed race and and. There has been a lower level of privilege compared to someone who is pure, pure white. There, but you know, it's it's way above uh, it's way way above you because you're a woman, right? So you know, your your privilege is 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 always registered as uh, as being lower than being being a man. Right. Right. And then I've got friends, you know, my, my, my women friends who are like black LGBTQ women, it's, you know, we talk about this a lot and like my background being kind of same thing. I'm mixed race, but I present white. So there's this thing where like my mother's Puerto Rican, I have Latin heritage, but I have the privilege of looking white in the world. And so I'm treated a certain way because I present very white. And that's something that we you know, all the, that's what intersectionality is, right? This isn't like a liberal buzzword. This is like a real social concept of all these different areas of privilege and oppression coming together to lead to our lived experience. And, you know, I think it's so important that you bring this up and I hate to take even just a tiny bit more time, but there's an important conversation that came up on the SGU just like last week or something, maybe two weeks ago now. Um, and I'm speak, I say this with absolute love because these are my brothers in, in, you know, in podcast production, but the SGU is for middle-aged white dudes from Connecticut. And they'll tell you that, you know, they don't have the most varied worldview. They all grew up together. Three of them are brothers. And I got not into an argument, but a conversation about 
political correctness. And I brought up this really great documentary that I recently saw called The Problem with Apu. Have you seen it? I haven't seen it, but I presume you mean Apu from The Simpsons? Apu from The Simpsons. Uh And so it's, you know, it's an Indian stand-up comedian who talks about the negative consequences for so many Southeast Asian people who have been stereotyped because Apu is, has been always this very extreme version. And he interviews all these amazing Indian actors or not even just Indian, but like, you know, Pakistani actors and other Southeast Asian actors talking about there, there's a term for it. I can't remember, but like the dialect that they're always expected to do like that Indian accent. That's actually nobody talks like that. Um, and you know, the extreme version. And it's amazing because as I'm talking to the guys about this, it's just not computing because they're like, it doesn't offend me. And, and, and I'm trying to tell them that we're not the people who would be offended by this because we're in a position where the existence of a poo does not affect our daily lives. But if you're a young Indian kid growing up in Missouri and people are calling you quickie mart boy and people are, you know, stereotyping your family and making wild generalizations about who you are because of this one quote, beloved character who, yes, is multifaceted and yes, has a lot of good qualities. I mean, that was a big argument too. It's like, no, but he's so lovable. I was like, so were the minstrels. Yeah. Like this was the, how they were presented. And, you know, add to that the idea that Apu is voiced by a white man. Was Hank Azaria in this program? He refused to be a part of it. Oh. But he did email him. And so, but there is footage of Hank Azaria and like some of the origin stories around Apu are a little bit shady. And so it was definitely an interesting conversation. And this to me feels like the nuanced, more modern, more kind of on, on people's radar version of, I don't want to say version of, because that's really unfair to the guys, but you know, the extreme example is the Amazon comment right? Of the like, how come black people are not capable of doing anything? And why is it that even with white colonialism, they're failing? Like, are you fucking out of your mind? But then I think a more nuanced kind of important conversation to be had is around like an Apu character, because these are things where for some reason, you still see like white men who are in positions of power being like, I'm not okay with you being not okay with a poo. You're being too sensitive. And it frustrates me. I mean, I think one of the biggest memes I've seen recently that really resonated with me on social media was, you know, the more that I care about anti-racism and the more that I'm involved in social justice, I sometimes have friends or family members saying, you used to have a good sense of humor. You used to be funny. What happened? And I say, no, I used to think that things that were really cruel weren't cruel Mm. because they didn't affect me. And now when I see how cruel they are, it doesn't make me laugh. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I mean, I think all the way when you were saying that I was thinking about diversity in labs and, and one of the reasons why, why, some of the structural racisms that exist within, say, my my field in biology and genetics, particularly, don't get tackled more head on. Is because you need to have them really pointed out to you that that you know your data set is making consists of a hundred thousand genomes, which is great, which means it's rich. Um, but wait a minute, who are they? Right, um, and 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 again, it's well-meaning people. Um, and good scientists, but ones who haven't necessarily thought about this specifically uh, or deeply enough, or that they that their lab makeups are d- don't include people who are excluded from these data sets. 
Um, and then they have to go back and, and say, oh, well, hold on a minute. I need to, you know, massively revise my findings because the data set that we're working from is not neutral because data is never neutral. And so, you know, just, just having those conversations. And I suppose the equivalent of, you know, your friends saying, oh, you used to have a sense of humor is, is, is like you know a reaction from a PI in genetics saying, "Oh God, do we have to include this? We have to we have to have diversity statements. We have to um, have affirmative action or or positive discrimination in in order to make our labs seem more diverse." Well, yeah, because ultimately, um, if all you care about is the science, you're going to make better science. You're going to have better data sets. You're going to be able to say more interesting and more conclusive things about humanity rather than things just about white people uh, and right. that's and that's set, why- setting aside all of all of the, the just the human dignity aspect to to equality I, right. I i think there's a really strong case to be made that genetics will be improved our understanding of human evolution and human variation and medicine uh, will all be improved by having better data sets by having more diverse labs who point out these things, who say things like, you know what, using the word Caucasian in, in an academic paper to describe a data set is, is scientifically illiterate as well as being mm-hmm. pr- historically and culturally problematic. And yet it happens all the time. All you know, the time. We've been and, through and- this recently. There's been this whole debate about, about IQ data, national IQ data. There's been some high profile cases of papers being withdrawn because the data sets on which they were based turned out to be fraudulent, made by racists, um, deeply, deeply pro- problematic and, um, sort of woefully inadequate data sets about national IQ, something so heavily politicized. And those, Data sets have been cited dozens, if not hundreds of times in, in psychology and in, uh, in other fields, criminology, uh, without anyone recognizing, without anyone having the gumption to look at them and just say, hold on a minute, this, 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 this data is bullshit. You know, it's based on a tiny sample size of people who didn't speak English, or it's based on the country IQ, uh, national IQ for this country it was never measured. It's based on an average of the two neighboring countries. Right. Or they're taking a test that was never developed within their culture. They're taking a test that was developed for white Americans. Yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, trying to answer questions that aren't natural questions to answer for them. Yeah. And so this is another example of what we were talking about earlier about skeptics not being skeptical enough, or in this case, scientists not being sciencey enough, because to, it takes more effort to look at the data sets that has been used dozens of times before and say, hold on a minute, is this, is this data robust? Who, how was it generated? Was it, was it um, generated by racists? In this case, many, the, the answer is in many t- cases, yes. Uh, is, it, is it useful? I, I, no. You know, do, we, we, there are so many aspects of these types of branches of science which we're going to have to revisit you know, from soup to nuts, because things that are just assumed to be correct actually are built on deeply, deeply either problematic or insubstantial data sets or actually done by racists. Right. Like overtly kind of obviously agenda driven. And even beyond those things like the Galtons and the Pearsons and the Spearmans of the world, you know, who who kind of like developed these racist systems, there is this I think 
the systemic racism that a lot of people mistake for. They say, oh, well, so you're saying the system is full of racists? No, I'm saying that the system itself encourages a lack of equity. And this is something that, you know, just like you were saying, the data sets um, may be based on kind of racist premises. Also, sometimes the function of something being easy, data being easy to collect is because we live in a society or a culture where it's easier to collect ethnocentric monocultural data because the whole system makes that easier. And this is something I've been coming to terms with with my own podcast. If you look back at early talk nerdies, most of my guests were white. Early on, I was struggling with the fact that I had a massively dominantly male audience. And I realized, well, I'm doing a science podcast. I'm mostly talking to men. So I made a concerted effort. And now more than 50% of my guests are women. But I haven't I've been bad about allowing book publishers to reach out to me to say, Hey, I have this new author, check out this book. Do you want to, do you want to book them on your show? And I'm like, yeah, that seems interesting or no, that's not really for me. And I started to get good about going another white dude. Maybe I need to not say yes to this one because I need to make room for others. But because I was being passive in my booking, looking back, I realized there are not nearly enough people of color on my show because I wasn't actively looking for them. And the sad thing is the reason I have to actively look for them is not because they don't exist. It's because our systems have made it so that they aren't the people we see. And that's the problem with systemic and and institutional racism. Uh, that's it's, exactly right. And, right? And, and, and I think that, you know, I'm... I'm pleased that I am part of this book is part of um, a whole suite of books and programs and radio programs and podcasts that are that are coming out it's partially in reaction to what's been going on in 2020 but but this is this is not new it's just it's new to people who are unaware of it exactly um, yeah the fact that the New York Times bestseller list had you know a few weeks ago, was populated almost exclusively by books by um, African Americans or about race. I, it was used as a sort of stick to beat the whole the, the whole movement by right wing thinkers and right right wing writers, which I thought was well, it was a bit discourteous, really, because you know th this is how change happens, um, and and maybe it's happening really fast as a result of events like COVID and like George George Floyd, but you know. I guess, I guess, you know, you're either part of the problem or you're part of the solution. Totally. It's the Beverly Tatum. I, I reference this all the time. And if you haven't, you know, if I haven't done it lately on Talk Nerdy, maybe I will. Beverly Tatum, who wrote um, Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together at the in the Cafeteria? She's a psychologist. She spoke about this exact thing years ago. And she has a little vignette where she talks about imagining the moving sidewalk at the airport. And she says, you know, the sidewalk is moving in a specific direction. And so you can imagine the white supremacists, the neo-Nazis, the overt racists as the people who are running, knocking everybody out of the way to get to the end. You can imagine that the people who are maybe a little bit more like, mm, I don't want my child dating a black guy as the people who are like walking with it. Even if you consider yourself non-racist, but you're standing still on the walkway, you're still going in that direction. And the only way to affect real change and to be part of the solution is to actively walk against the flow. And that's what it means to be anti-racist. Yeah. And if you're not doing that, like you said, if you're not part of the solution, you really are part of the problem. You're encouraging these systems because you're benefiting from them. 
That's a good analogy. I end the book with a quote from Angela Davis, which is that in a racist society, it is not enough to be non-racist. You have to be anti-racist. And I think that, you know, there's, there's three parts to that. One, in a racist society, well, we live in a racist society. It's in the UK. I think things are much better than they've ever been in the past. I think America has a distinct history with regards to racism uh, because of transatlantic slavery uh, and, and has never really got to grips with it at all. I think we all thought things were going to be better for eight years under Obama. Um, and then things changed. Right. Yeah. I mean, you expect that kind of backlash anytime you have progress. I guess you're so. See people pushing back against that progress. I, I guess think. so. And then, and then there's the and then the, the point that you just made that it's it's not actually enough to be non-racist. You you have to contest it. You have to right. because if you, because if you, by being non-racist, you are still being still adhering to a structurally racist society. And I think you know when it comes down to it. I'm a, I'm a scientist. This is this is. I'm I'm interested in DNA and you know super nerdy stuff and mm-hmm. <laughs> and genes and and that's what I really really care about. Um, and I think that's part of the problem too. That too many scientists are are you know have that expression that that sentiment, which is you know what this, what I do isn't really. It, it doesn't have anything to do with social movements. It doesn't really have anything right, to, like to do with Right, like I need to be, a, science is apolitical. Yeah. And, <laughs> yeah, right. And <laughs> I, I, exactly. I mean, I, I know, I know that feeling. I, I would, I would love to have not written this book. I, I, I mean, I, I mean, I would love to have not had to have written this book more precisely uh, because what I really care about is morphogen gradients and patterning and, <laughs> and butterfly wings and, and, and the retina. Um, but the truth is that we we can't do that. Science is not exempt from society. It's not outside of society. It is part of it. It is science itself, contra to what Lawrence Krauss argues, is demonstrably structurally ra- racist because it's part of society and society is structurally racist. And it is it is incumbent on all of us to to fix that. And you can't fix it as per Angela Davis by being non-racist. You have to be an anti-racist. Here, here. Well, guys, the book is, I'm going to read the full American title here, How to Argue with a Racist, What Our Genes Do and Don't Say About Human Difference. We never got to talk, Adam, about, well, there's a whole bunch of stuff we didn't get to talk about. So before we get to that, will you tell people where they can find like the podcast that you're involved in, the some of the broadcast work that you're doing, like how can they learn more about you, especially from over here in the States? Um, I think that's like kind of the bulk of my audience, even though English speaking across the world, um, we do have uh, listeners. Sure, sure. So um, yeah, I am, I'm heavily British focused, um, but uh, I mean, God help me, Twitter is the place that I, uh, that I, can't quite shake my addiction to, so you'll find me at at Adam Rutherford. Um, and I, my my uh, my Twitter feed is a three way mixture between stuff about science and race and the book, and stuff about science in general, because my main job is as a radio broadcaster um, for the BBC, and pictures of my new puppy Jesse. Um, <laughs> so I, and I'm unapologetic about that. Twitter is obviously a horrible cesspit and the more pictures of puppies, the better. 
Agree, a hundred percent agree. <laughs> <laughs> the, I made two two radio programs for the BBC, uh, which both both of which are podcast. Um, uh, one of them is called Inside Science, and it's kind of like I don't know Science Friday for NPR. It's the, it's, it's the weekly science magazine program for the BBC, uh, and the other one is called The Curious Cases of Rutherford and Fry, and I make that with my my. Uh, best friend and colleague Hannah Fry, who's a mathematician, also at UCL, and it's a bit more lighthearted. Oh, and, and guests of, of Talk Nerdy, or sorry, listeners of Talk Nerdy, know Hannah because she's been on the show before as well to talk about Hello World. Oh, cool! Yes, of course. Well, she's, yeah, yeah, yeah. She is the best. And when I hang up from you, I've got to drive around to her house because nice. we are in the end game of writing a book together, which will be out in twenty one. <gasps> Awesome. Oh, gosh. And so the other thing that we didn't get to talk about was your experience having contracted COVID. Is there anywhere you can point people like where you've maybe written about this or been interviewed about it? Do you know what I so I got just just so so your listeners know, I I got hit pretty hard um, Mm -hmm. uh, relatively early on. So I I had a bad case of COVID. And then I got pneumonia on top of that uh, as I was immunosuppressed. And that was as close as I've come to dying uh, uh, in my 45 years on this planet. So that wasn't that much fun. The weird thing was that psychologically, and I'm sort of acknowledging this, maybe for the first time in talking to you, is that it has made me avoid talking about it <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's and yeah. during the whole time i hannah we were just talking about hannah has been she's been all over this because epidemiology and pandemic spread via mathematical modeling is a huge part of her work um mm-hmm. and she even did a documentary about this about two years ago where they were using track and trace apps to try and just completely model a fictional uh pandemic um, and that, and those, those resultant academic papers have, have come out of, of that work. Anyway, the whole time when I was talking to her, I, she, she recognized quite early on, because we see each other every day, she recognized quite early on that um, I, was, I wasn't talking about it <laughs> and I wasn't expressing enough interest in the sort of science behind the headlines and, and all the stuff that was going on. So I've, I've, had, to, I've had to play catch up, but there was, there was definitely um, an implicit that I'm now acknowledging was explicit bias about avoiding talking about the thing that almost damn near killed me. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, that's actually what my dissertation, I'm starting to work towards my dissertation now. And my area of interest is existential psychology, of course. And so um, it's looking like I'm going to be putting together a, a nice study on some of these post ICU experiences of, of COVID patients, because yeah, it's, it's a longstanding, not just medical or physical problem, but the psychological implications are huge. Um, so yeah, I'm sure there's a lot more to go. And maybe, maybe that's, um, I know a lot of people just love to hear about the experience if yeah. and when you're ready to do that. Um, maybe I'll hit you up in the future when I'm working on, on parts of my dissertation as well. It could be interesting to hear your insights. Well, you know, I love talking to you and I have a memory that the last time we did this, we also went on for an hour and a half. You're like, oh, well, like, I was ready for it. I put it in the calendar. Gosh, Adam, I learned so much. I always do. There's so much more that we could be talking about. I hope everybody picks up the book. Um, thank you so much for joining me. It was just a, an absolute joy. Yeah, yeah. I, like I said at the beginning, it's a, it's a complete pleasure talking to you. And it's nice to be talking to you in the same time zone because normally you're in, yes. you're in the West Coast and I have to do this. In fact, the last time we talked, 
I was standing in my daughter's bedroom at, because that was where we got the best Wi-Fi in the house at the time. And she was desperate to go to bed because it was like 10 o'clock at night. Oh, no. We just, we just kept talking. Yeah. And talking. No, it's like, okay, no, I'll just be five more minutes. I've just got to talk about Charlemagne and the history of... <laughs> I'm just going to explain the ice point one more time. <laughs> She's like, I need I to go to bed, Dad. She's like, I don't care. I've heard this so many times. Oh, that's so funny. Well, yes, it was amazing. It's always amazing. Thank you so much for being here. And everybody who's listening, thank you for coming back week after week. I'm really looking forward to the next time we all get together to talk nerdy. Mm-hmm.